the talk tonight is the secret to happiness or the willingness to learn from all of our experience. The Buddha taught that the secret to happiness is waking up, waking up from ignorance. And it said um, that it's like we've been lost in sleep or asleep at the wheel. We tend to be lost in our storylines or drama or ways in which we entertain ourselves. It's like we're lost in a dream. We tend to perceive ourselves as separate and alienated. Uh, Vipassana, which means seeing the truth of things as they are, means um, when we're at a Vipassana retreat, we're meant to apply mindfulness or wise attention to our life experience or our moment-to-moment experience. And if we do this with some kind of um, continuity, with sincerity of heart, it will be inevitable that wisdom and compassion will arise. Not only will they arise, but they'll develop and deepen. When wisdom or compassion appears in our heart, it feels wonderful. There really is no greater happiness. The Buddha said there's no greater happiness than peace. So I'd like to uh, talk about this process of waking up from ignorance, mindfulness. Uh, I'd like to talk about our resistance to um, what's happening in the moment and our willingness to learn. I found this cartoon of uh, a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon on my sister's refrigerator. And she died this year, so it means a lot to me, this cartoon. And for those of you who don't know Calvin and Hobbes, Calvin is a little boy that is usually getting into trouble. And Hobbes is his favorite stuffed animal and uh, imaginary friend. So in the cartoon, Hobbes, his big tiger stuffed animal, is pushing Calvin down a hill in a little red wagon. Uh, So Calvin is in front with the handle, uh, and Hobbes is pushing. So Calvin says to Hobbes, It's true, Hobbes. Ignorance is bliss. And so then they start going down this hill in a forest and they're winding and almost hitting trees but getting faster and faster and missing the trees almost. So Calvin continues, Once you know things, you start seeing problems everywhere. And once you see problems, you feel like you ought to try to fix them. And fixing problems always seems to require personal change. And change means doing things that aren't fun. I say fooey to that. (laughs) And now they're going down this huge, steep hill. And uh, Hobbes looks quite upset. And Calvin is turning around to continue to tell him. But if you're willfully stupid, you don't know any better, so you can keep doing whatever you like. And now they've lost control completely. 
The secret to happiness is short-term stupid self-interest. <laughs> so now uh, Calvin has both hands over his eyes and Hobbes is still looking out of one eye. And Hobbes says, but we're heading for that cliff. And Calvin says like this, I don't want to know about it. <laughs> and then they, they just go flying off this cliff and crash miserably. And, you know, they're just kind of coming to. And Hobbes says, I'm not sure I can stand this much bliss. <laughs> and Calvin says, careful. We don't want to learn anything from this. <laughs> in a wonderful way, we have two choices in life each moment. We're either lost or we're awake. We're either asleep at the wheel or we're mindful. So the question really is, is ignorance bliss? And as Calvin says, once you know things, you start seeing problems everywhere. And fixing problems seems to require personal change, which means doing things that aren't fun. So if we're willfully stupid, we can keep doing whatever we like. That's Calvin's idea of happiness. So he says, the secret to happiness is short-term stupid self-interest. The Buddha said, the secret to success is developing long-term wisdom and compassion and overcoming self-centeredness, overcoming ignorance. The Buddha taught that not resisting what's happening in our experience is peace. He said that if we're mindful, we can be free from being lost or ignorant, being lost in greed, hatred, and delusion. So when Hobbes says to Calvin as they're zooming down the cliff, we're heading for that cliff. How many times today did you close your eyes and say, I don't want to know about this. I don't really want to know about what's happening in the present moment. And then when they have that huge crash, Calvin says, careful, we don't want to learn anything from this. It's like whatever we've been struggling with today, our biggest obstacles are usually our greatest teachers. You know, but it usually takes that shifting from resisting what's happening to really being willing to learn. A retreat is a time for spiritual uh, learning. It's like we have such deep yearning for the truth. And we all do. A retreat is a time to explore and to take risks, to make what we so-called call mistakes. And hopefully we have the willingness to stretch or explore deeply. For example, uh, a retreat I taught recently in California, there was a woman who came to the retreat this year uh, who last year at the same retreat, it was her first retreat, and she was terrified of doing the late night sit. And she had so much fear. She wrote me a note and she said, can I just 
look in your eyes as you walk in the hall to lead the late night sit and I think I'll be able to come. And so she did that. I didn't even have to talk with her. I just look in her eyes and she, she made it through. She did those sittings. And at the end of the retreat last year, she had so much confidence and strength comparatively just from making that stretch to face that fear. And this year, she didn't write me a note, but at the end of the retreat, she was just so excited because this year she could stretch even more. You know, she learned to stay within her limit, but to stretch. In a mindfulness retreat, we're applying mindfulness to explore the fundamental question, who am I? Who are you? What is happiness? <clears throat> what is peace? What is, what is my body, free from my ideas about it? What is mind? What is heart? You know, these are all so important, these questions. When we apply mindfulness with continuity, we start to understand that experience is changing. When Calvin covers his eyes and says, I don't want to know about this, it's often that resistance to change that we don't want to know about. Can we say yes or, you know, okay, I'm willing to explore what's happening right now in my life. It's this willingness to face the resistance. And in this way, mindfulness is not analytical. And it's not done through our usual way of figuring things out. Because our usual way is being lost in past conditioning, past thoughts about life. What is freedom from (coughs) concept or freedom from past conditioning is mindfulness. One of the great teachers who came from Asia, from Japan, this last century and wrote a book called Beginner's Mind was Suzuki Roshi. And he described mindfulness as soft readiness. And that's so beautiful. It's so strong, and yet it's so gentle. It's just a soft readiness of mind. And this implies that there's a readiness for something. And it's a readiness for anything to happen. Because the truth is that we don't know what's going to happen in the next moment or the next moment. So this description of just being here in the present moment very lightly with our attention, very softly being ready. The truth of life is change. Uh, and the Buddha taught an aspect of this change uh, that's very, that can be very subtle, uh, which is that with each moment of consciousness, there's also a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling. So this means whenever we have anything happen at one of the six sense doors, a sound, a sight, a smell, a taste, a touch, a thought, there's also a corresponding pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling. This is a mental feeling. 
And it happens every moment. And it's something we have very little control over. So this is a vast world of change us human beings take birth into. And it's because we don't understand that it's a given. (laughs) We don't understand that because we're not aware of this change of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, that we're, we're usually reacting to the pleasure pain syndrome. And we don't understand that we're suffering through blindly reacting. It's like we have our hands over our eyes and we don't really want to see the truth of things. When mindfulness is present, freedom is possible. You know, this is why mindfulness is called wise attention, because we can see clearly and not react to the change. Mindfulness is so pure. It's so radical because it doesn't matter what our experience is when mindfulness is there. It can be boredom. It can be knee pain. It can be loving kindness. It can be the sound of the rain. It can be irritation. But that moment when we can just stop and have that ability to be just soft, open, receptive, and see clearly, oh yeah, it's just boredom. Can I learn how to be with that experience? I mean, just the the beauty of being able to have the time to just hear the rain and listen to the rain is a wonderful thing, or to hear a spring bird. But also we get this opportunity to learn to be with boredom or sadness. You can see that in this process we're not changing life in any way to be on retreat. We're just having the space and time to learn to learn the skill of applying this non-judgmental attention to our experience. So we learn that freedom is how we relate to experience. Otherwise, it would be conditioned. Freedom is unconditioned, meaning it's not based on experience. The irony is that we ask you to really immerse yourself in your direct experience to learn this freedom. So an aspect of mindfulness that's so important is distinguishing between what our direct experience is and what concept is, what is conditioning. Being asleep at the wheel is being lost in concept. So for example... If I ask you to close your eyes and just listen to the sound of the bell ringing right now, mindfulness is following the process of this whole experience of listening. It will include thoughts about the bell, but it's learning to distinguish between the direct vibration of hearing itself and any thoughts about the bell and any judgments that come with those thoughts. The concept or word bell is so different than the direct vibration of hearing. They're distinguishable. 
And this is what we're doing. We're not trying to get rid of concept or we're not trying to get rid of the word bell. In fact, (laughs) you couldn't sit here probably and not have that thought, oh, that's a bell. Or if you're really paying close attention and just letting go of control, you might have thoughts about where the bell came from. You know, or maybe there could be a better bell. Uh, Whatever it is. Say you're sitting here and the sound of a car goes by. It's not that you try to get rid of the thought, oh, that's a car. It's only that you try to learn to come back to the direct experience of the vibration and distinguish. And then to notice when you get lost in a proliferating thought about it. So you might notice that you had an awareness of hearing and then ten minutes later you come out of a long thought process about the first car you bought. You know, whatever it is, you know how it is. It's just, how did that happen? You know, so many minutes went by and we're not aware of it. It's because we got lost in a thought about that experience. So when you notice hearing, it's just hearing. If you notice a thought about it, it's just thinking. If you notice a judgment about someone, you don't have to get rid of it. It's just judging. So it's this ability to just notice the process of life happening at your six sense doors with mindfulness. Say we're mindful of the movement of the breath at the abdomen. If mindfulness is happening with some kind of continuity and you were asked to tell a teacher about it, you might say something like, I noticed the rising movement and I noticed pressure moving and it disappeared slowly. Well, that would be a really interesting report for a teacher. But you might think to yourself, well, so what? (laughs) You might be doing walking meditation and you might have had an experience of the direct vibration of the feeling of the hardness where the foot touches the earth or the floor. And you might do that many times and you might have a sense of what, well, well, so what? But there's implications to having our attention concurrent with whatever's happening in the present moment. We call that the object of the attention, when the attention is concurrent with the object of what we're paying attention to. That concurrency mean that means that we've allowed ourselves to be touched by the truth of life. We've allowed ourselves to be touched by the universe in that moment. And in that moment, or moments, we're noticing direct experience. It's not analytical. It's not conceptual. And there's a possibility in those moments for what we call intuitive wisdom to arise. And intuitive wisdom means that we realize it's like an aha. It's not through the thinking process. We're not thinking about the breath, but we realize that the breath, the word, is just a concept. We realize that I am just a word or abdomen is just a word. And we understand that I am not my body. There is no my body. There's no separate me. There's no abdomen. 
there's just air element arising and passing away in that moment. It's a realization or an understanding. And it, it's sometimes easier to imagine this process in eating. So say you were eating breakfast tomorrow and you had a banana. And I ask you to be very mindful of that process. So you might be aware of reaching, touching. Now at what point does that banana become you? Eating is a fascinating place to get liberated. I have to say it's so vivid, (laughs) so intense. Uh, It's so tangible. Not so tangible as air element with the breath, but eating, you can just sort of get the grasp, that sense of how we create separation through seeing, through touching, and then lifting, lifting, lifting. At some point when you open your mouth and you put the banana in your mouth, is that when it becomes us? Is that when we lose that sense of separation from that separate thing? These are very important questions. And when we're chewing and it goes down here, does it become more us? And when it comes out, is that suddenly it's no longer us? Hair, when we cut our hair, when we cut our nails, um, now is it separate from us? These are important questions. So when you notice air element, at what point? Do you feel not separate from it when it's out here, when it's here, here? These are the questions that are so important. When we're noticing lifting, moving, placing, and placing the foot, if we're not lost in the concept of foot or we're not lost in the concept of floor or grass, we might have a direct experience of heaviness moving or hardness. And we might recognize in that moment that it's just hardness in that moment, that what we call my body is a changing process of the elements of earth, air, fire, and water. It's this realization that we are misperceiving reality that's so important. That's an aspect of why we're here. So even if we look at the range of physical phenomena, if you sit for 45 minutes, usually we get in touch with earth element. Yeah? Mostly, at least we might be noticing hardness. You know, why do we get up? (laughs) Because we're in touch with hardness. It's hard after 45 minutes. Now, we tend to like softness. We tend to not like hardness. With air element, we tend to like light vibration, tingling, tickling, light movement. When it's stabbing or throbbing or tight, 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 tight in the back of the neck, we don't tend to like air element as much. So the practice is one of learning how to Be mindful to open to more of how life is in the body and the mind. Warm and cool are aspects of fire element that we tend to be more open to. But cold or burning, 
are we as able to be aware of those? One time, years ago, let's see, I think it was 1979, I was cooking here for a Burmese master meditation teacher. Uh, And I was quite new to the practice. And I went over to the house across the street where he had this uh, monk, Sayadaw, and there were a number of monks with him. And I ran over uh, and I started to put some water on to boil. And I um, burnt my finger pretty badly. Just was in a rush, burnt my finger. And there was a, a man there who came from Burma who was, you know, like um, his private cook. Uh, but he, it turns out he was a meditation master as well, but I didn't know it. And I, I just burned my finger, and I was just about to go, <laughs> my burnt finger, and he went, burning, burning, burning. And it was great. It was like, oh, I learned more in that moment than I had for days of listening to talks. It's like, oh, I can be aware of that. It's okay. So when we're aware of our direct experience, whether we realize it or not, we're allowing ourselves to be touched by the deepest truth of the universe. In a reply once to a query whether he was afraid of death, Albert Einstein replied, I feel such solidarity with all living things that it does not matter to me where the individual begins and ends. Understanding that physical matter is a transforming process of earth, air, fire, and water. So we can shift from a perception of ourselves as being separate, or in other words, that we are caught in an extreme self-centeredness, and we see ourselves as beings struggling to survive on the planet. Or we can shift to more and more understanding that we're deeply interconnected with all of life. So is the secret to happiness short-term stupid self-interest? Or is it learning to face the truth of life through our direct experience? Do we wake up so that we can become free of this extreme self-centeredness? When we talk about waking up, one aspect of waking up is waking up to the three truth of existence. So one of the things we wake up to is change. Anicca is the Pali word that is used. And so this means that when we sit down to uh, come in and do a sitting, you'll notice right away that Stephen and I are encouraging you to notice the change of the breath, the change in sounds, the change in body sensations the change in thought and emotion. What stayed the same today? Probably not much. 
So we say that what is an I or a me or a you, we say that it's a changing process of sounds, body sensations, breath, thoughts, emotions. And if you pay close attention, if you look directly at a thought, you'll be amazed. You'll be amazed at how much power we give something so ephemeral, so fastly changing, so light. You know, but when we're caught up in our busy lives, it's not as easy to see this. But you can see it if you put your attention on it. It's not that hard. It's actually quite simple. It's maintaining the continuity that can be difficult. So the Buddha taught that life is appearing and disappearing by itself and that we never know what's going to happen. So we shift that to this understanding of the truth that because everything's changing, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, so that truth of dukkha or suffering means that experience cannot yield a lasting permanent happiness. That's another truth. It doesn't mean that pleasure doesn't exist. Pleasure exists, but it changes, and experience itself can't be totally satisfactory because of the change. And one of the third truth that we tend to have the most difficulty with that I'm emphasizing tonight is that if we look very closely at experience, we're not who we appear to be. We're not as separate or solid as we think we are. Not even one moment stays the same. If we're seeing clearly, even in one moment, that identification with body will start to lose some of its grasp. Are we our mind? Are we our heart? Are we our body? These are good questions for us on a retreat. If mindfulness is present, we're not lost, we're not asleep in the conceptual world. We're not identified with my me as being my me. There'll be just sensations there that appear and disappear momentarily. If you feel like you're lost in the conceptual world, if you feel like you're not in a space where this is accessible to you, mindfulness, you can still become mindful of being lost. You know, if you, if you really feel flogged, fogged in or sleepy, it's not the end of the world. It's just low energy. It's just sleepiness or foggy. And you can bring a great awareness to that. You can keep going with your practice and it will clear again at some point. Often we have to be more careful with um, what we believe in terms of our mind when we're lost or tired. And be very careful of judging your practice. I mean, when we tend to have this idea that there's good sittings and bad sittings, and that we're a good yogi when such and such happens, and we're bad when such and such happens. But self-hatred, just it's, it's so painful, and it doesn't help the practice. It's like we go down into a vicious cycle. The less kind we are toward ourselves because we're judging our practice, um, the less energy we have and the more doubt we have. 
speaking of doubt, I wanted to just um, mention for people that are new to the practice that that often we face um, in a life of practice the five hindrances. And they can seem like obstacles to present time awareness. So doubt is one of them. Sleepiness and restlessness are, are hindrances. And these three are said to have shallow roots in us human beings. Sleepiness, restlessness, doubt. The deeper roots in us are um, aversion, fear, attachment. One of the most wonderful things that I heard the Buddha say about the hindrances is in regard to restlessness. He said, when the mind is restless, he or she knows that the mind is restless. That's the instruction. I mean, it's such a beautiful instruction. When the mind is sleepy, (laughs) he or she knows that the mind is sleepy. When the mind is aversive, one knows that the mind is aversive. Now, a a more um, descriptive view of this would be that if we're mindful, say, of restlessness, we would be aware of four things. We would recognize that restlessness was there. Ah, that's that's 50% of the battle from going from being lost to awake. Restlessness. Now, if there is resistance, if our eyes are closed and we have our hands over our eyes, we are not going to want to be with that experience. I don't want to know about it. And I'm definitely not going to want to learn anything from this. I don't want to be restless, right? Well, that we've shifted from being awake to asleep. Uh, So recognition, acceptance is very helpful in terms of mindfulness. Interest Even if there's a little interest in our experience, there's a big shift. And then not identifying with the experience as being mine or me or I pulls the thorn out of the heart. So when the Buddha said, when the mind is restless, he or she knows that the mind is restless, it's implied that those four qualities are there that we are aware or recognize what's happening. Sleepiness. It's just sleepiness. It's okay. It's low energy. Can we become accepting of that experience, interested in it, and not take it personally? The weather in New England is such a great teacher for not taking things personally. If you can relate to sleepiness like you do this cloud front, it has seemed to last for some days now. It's, the, it's just the same thing. We tend to culturally take low energy as a really, really bad thing. <laughs> you know, somehow, it's just so unacceptable to us. And we can learn to be mindful of it. We can learn to uh, do some interventions with the awareness uh, to try to bring up energy. And then there's a graceful surrender. This year I was um, 
teaching a retreat uh, where a woman came who'd been to the same retreat the year before, like I described with this other woman who um, had trouble with the late night sitting. And this woman hadn't done much practice. And last year when I saw her, she was really healthy. And this year she came into the retreat in a wheelchair. And she has Lou Gehrig's disease, and it's, it's advancing for her quite quickly. And she has to talk very slowly. Um, it's hard for her to walk. And I didn't know exactly what had happened for her, but she was in one of my group interviews. And so she was sitting there very quietly, and as usual in, in group interviews, often, you know, we're talking about sleepiness and restlessness, <laughs> aversion, attachment, stuff like that. Uh, and she was very quiet. And then she started talking about dealing with what had just happened in this year. And she talked about this fear that kept coming up around becoming dependent and more, you know, fear of pain. Uh, and every time she'd talk, she'd say, you know, I have all I need. I have all the instruction I need. It's just that I just have to learn to apply what I know. Uh, and so she described that whenever the fear comes up, she just asks herself, am I okay right now? And the answer is yes. And then she'll have this another wave of fear sometimes, and she'll say, am I okay now? And she'll say yes. Uh, and she was such an incredible example of someone who was applying the mindfulness to her experience. And she was so inspiring. She was such a light. And then at the end of describing this, she said, you think I'm, you think I'm missing anything? <laughs> you think I'm clear? And we were all like, <laughs> just so, um, it was such a blessing to be with her. You know, that it was like it was so simple. And she was so motivated to apply the teachings. Yes, you already have enough that you need. You know that if you can bring present time awareness to your experience, that you'll be okay. And then there'll be that fear that you won't be able to do it in the future. But actually then you just say, oh yeah, that's just fear, and you bring it back to the present moment. You know, and that's what's so healing and what's so strengthening about this practice. It's not that complicated. We make things complicated. Uh, and it's learning the simplicity of just over and over starting again. Noticing that we have our hands <laughs> over our eyes and that we're lost and then starting again. It's simple. We're usually lost in some thought about our experience rather than being connected with the truth of our present moment experience. So it's the disconnection from our life, from the truth, that's so painful. And mindfulness is what allows us to connect again and connect again. With mindfulness, there's no fear, because we can be lost for five minutes, ten minutes, or whatever, and the moment we remember, it's okay. We're back. Sometimes we have multiple hindrance attacks, and that means that sometimes we might have some sleepiness, and then uh, 
maybe we have aversion to the sleepiness and we get really upset and then we have some doubt about whether we can do the practice and then maybe the energy goes a little wild and we get restless. <laughs> and then we think about a chocolate chip cookie uh, and whatever and we're getting caught in desire. And that can happen in five seconds practically. <laughs> uh, so I wanted to read this note that somebody left... Um, a manager at the last retreat I taught, um, and I asked her if I could read this in a talk because it's such a beautiful example of what can happen with a multiple hindrance attack. And especially, this is a a good fear, a fear hindrance attack. Uh, So this this was in California. This was two retreats ago. Dear managers, So I was taking a walk on one of the paths, think city girl, feeling um, very, very adventurous. And all was peaceful and well until I was in the woods. And a big black spider, see picture on back. (laughs) A big black spider glommed onto my sweatshirt. I began squealing so much for noble silence and then started running. I ditched the path and headed for the field to get out of the woods. Unfortunately, I thoroughly disturbed some roosting turkeys, and they started squawking, which scared me. I ran back into the woods and onto the path and picked up the pace. Then it crossed my mind that I was... By the way, there, were, there was a little brochure on mountain lions on the bulletin board where we were, <laughs> which scared me too. <laughs> it crossed my mind that I was sure to be a mountain lion's dinner, so I tried walking, saying to myself, be mindful, be mindful. But it was all too much, so I said, screw mindfulness, <laughs> screw the mountain lions. And I took off at a high rate of speed, for me anyway, seeing as I quit smoking four days ago and my lungs aren't able to keep up with my legs. (laughs) As I was cruising past the dead stumps of trees, homes of mountain lions, (laughs) I spotted in passing the dreaded poison oak. I am now convinced, since I was running and squealing like an idiot and not paying attention, that I am covered in poison oak oil. I threw my clothes on the floor and washed my face and hands, but I'm worried. I saw the laundry soap in the manager's office, but it didn't seem to be special poison oak soap. I didn't see anything poison oak related, but I did notice you have a wonderful supply of Chinese herbs. (laughs) Can I buy some? (laughs) Anyway, what do you recommend I do besides shutting up? (laughs) And there's a great picture of this spider with little suction cups on its feet. We can laugh because we know it so well. You know, this might not have been your experience. On my last self-retreat, I just had so many challenges that I wasn't aware were going to happen. You know, there were 44 guinea hens, five dogs, two peacocks, a grandfather clock that chimed every 15 minutes really loud. And I was a machine that sounded like, you know, somebody was shooting a gun unpredictably. I mean, it was just amazing. Uh, and there was a point 
where I hadn't slept all night because the dogs were barking. It was wildly noisy, and I thought, my retreat's ruined. Did you have any thoughts like that today? (laughs) And then the next morning when the dogs barked a lot again and I tried to run away, but I couldn't find a place to run away, the next thought that morning was, I ruined my retreat. And then eventually I settled in, and it was okay. And I knew that it was just doubt. So hopefully we start to get a sense that mindfulness is just a soft readiness. We're here to learn. We're here in life to learn from whatever is happening in our life, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And please remember that the emphasis is on learning. If we're truly ready for anything to happen, then the motivation will be pure. Meditation is the purification of motivation. What's the opposite of this purity of motivation is resistance. Be careful. We don't want to learn anything from life. So the suffering in life is when we're resisting what's happening in the present moment and we're thinking what's happening is an obstacle rather than a teacher. So what kind of retreat did you expect? Did you expect no body pain or the best sleeping place or no sleepiness or no difficult people or no fear or just pleasure or no difficulty? Or do we want the truth? I'd like to end with an interview, part of an interview with Mother Teresa. An interviewer asked her, when you pray to God, what do you say? And she said, when I pray, I don't say anything. I just listen. And then the interviewer asked, well, when God answers you, what what does he say? And she said, he doesn't say anything. He just listens. And she said, if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. That's that soft readiness that you're learning here to apply again and again, that deep listening, that receptivity, that receiving of life just as it is. And it's so exquisite and timeless when we touch into it. And it's worth all the aches and pains of being here. So let's sit for a few minutes.
May we come to understand the secret to happiness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.